Well, I invite you to turn to 979 in your Sanctuary Bible, 979. Our reading this morning is Matthew 22, 15 through 22. Matthew 22. I'd like to say a few words of introduction about this passage before we begin. This is, you can probably tell, this is a continuation from our first reading in Matthew 21. This takes place in the final week of Jesus' life. In Matthew 21, we see that Jesus enters the temple, knocks over all these tables at which money is being exchanged and animals are being uh, sold, and um, basically makes a nuisance of himself there. And the people really don't like that. The, the people who run the temple are, are really shocked at this behavior. Uh, he departs and goes and stays in Bethany for the night, and, and things kind of cool down a little bit. But then the next day, he comes back, and so they're waiting for him now. So today is his dialogue with the leaders of the temple, or some of the religious leaders, and they're trying to trap him by getting him to commit to a political position that's going to be either unpopular or get him killed. Those are the, really the only two choices. And so it's kind of a, uh, an attempt to trick Jesus. Now we've seen before that when you try to trick the Son of God, uh, you, you, just, you made a mistake already right there. It just doesn't work out. Now I want to see if anyone remembers an, a show called The Odd Couple. Anybody remember The Odd Couple? These two men, one is a total neat freak and the other is a complete slob. And for some reason or other, they have to live together in this small apartment. What could possibly go wrong, right? What could possibly go wrong? Well, hilarity ensues, hopefully. Um, and there's some odd couples in our text today. We'll find that two groups that usually have nothing to do with each other team up in this particular case to try to trap Jesus. One group that we know of a lot, we hear a lot about them, is the Pharisees. They were actually the heroes of the people because they opposed the rule of the Roman Empire. And they probably had a very genuine desire to lead a holy life, and people actually looked up to them. Uh, we, we tend to use that word in a sort of pejorative sense. But back then, Pharisees were pretty well-respected people, and uh, Jesus actually loved them, and some of them he actually had some really great conversations with, as we see in Scripture. The other group most people generally despise, and this was a group called the Herodians. They're only mentioned about three or four times in the entire New Testament. They're somewhat of an obscure group, but you could say that they're the political and ethnic and economic allies of the ruling class, particularly the family of Herod and his descendants. And they were actually of a different ethnicity than the Jews. They were Idumeans. They were from a, a part of the Middle East that was just on the other side of the Jordan River and to the south of Israel. But nonetheless, they were an ambitious class of people. They were well-connected, and they had ingratiated themselves with the Roman Empire. And so they had a lot at stake in keeping the status quo. These two groups, the Pharisees and the Herodians, would never normally even talk to each other. They would probably cross the street to avoid having to look each other in the face. But in, when it came to Jesus, they agreed on one thing, which is that he had to go. And so they banded together on this particular day to ask him what they thought was a brilliant question. It was a question about tax, whether it was lawful or legal. And they're, then they're putting Jesus into the category of a legal scholar or a scribe or uh, sort of a teacher of the law. Is it legal or lawful to pay taxes to, this, to Caesar and by extension to the Roman Empire. 
And this was the same tax actually that Joseph had to pay when Jesus was born. He had to travel down and pay, get registered in the census. Uh, when, when a government takes a census, they're just not interested in information. They're interested in money too. So that, that census that Joseph went with Mary when Jesus was born was he also had to pay a tax at that time. It was a head tax, a census tax. Um, this was a hot potato issue politically in Jesus' day. This kind of pitted two groups against each other. For example, it pitted the Pharisees against the Herodians. Uh, the, uh, and, and other people who ran the temple had an interest in the status quo. The Pharisees were opposed to paying the tax in principle because the Romans were the ones that were collecting it. But they actually paid it. They didn't go so far as to tell their followers not to pay it. They actually wouldn't touch the money that they paid it with. It had to be paid in Roman currency. They, they would find ways to pay it without touching the money, but they would pay it. Uh, but there were other groups, the zealots, or called the ultranationalists, who opposed paying it completely and didn't pay it. This was such a hot topic, such a big issue, that in the year 66 AD, this was one of the reasons why those people sort of took control of the country and started a, a full-out rebellion and revolt against the Roman Empire, a war that lasted for four years and ended with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple and the diaspora or the dispersion of all the Jewish people into the wide Roman worlds, the, one that weren't, the ones that weren't killed. And so this was such a hot political issue that it actually led to a war many decades later. Uh, and it turns out that even Jesus had a zealot or an ultranationalist as one of his disciples. So these people were everywhere. They were, they were virulently opposed to the Roman Empire and to paying taxes to it because they saw that as supporting an oppressive system, of course. So in our text today, Jesus is being asked to come down on one side or the other, and they're hoping to trap him. Let's look at how he responds. How he responds shows his wisdom. Our reading is Matthew 22, 15 through 22. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not. But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, Whose portrait is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, so they left him and went away. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would add your blessing to it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we see, trying to trap Jesus never really works out. Trying to trick him into some sort of mind game he always sort of does that jujitsu on you or that judo where you kind of take the other person's inertia and you pivot on it and you use it to kind of be their undoing. And so he just uh, kind of outflanks and outfoxes them again. It always happens. 
but this is a few things I'd like us to notice. This is kind of the working out of that old saying that you hear quite often. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Have you heard that one? The enemy of my enemy is... It's kind of a sad saying, actually, because he's not really your friend. But he's just more of an, he's more of an enemy of your friend than your enemy. Oh, never mind. But both Pharise- the Pharisees and the Herodians wanted to see Jesus dead. They wanted to get rid of him. He was really a fly in the ointment. So they put aside extremely big differences that they had with each other because they saw in Jesus an even bigger threat. This is kind of an indication to us how much Jesus had sort of made ripples in the pond there. He wasn't some minor flash-in-the-pan prophet that they often talk about. I mean, you talk, when you hear them talking about Jesus and the councils, they say, well, if he was nobody, it would just kind of flare up for a few days and then it would go away. And, but that never happened with Jesus. He had this sustained ministry that was truly transformative. He was making big ripples in this pond, so much so that the boat was rocking violently, and the people on the boat said, we got to get rid of this guy. And we're going to set aside everything that we dislike about each other for this one common purpose, which is to get rid of him. And as we know, they succeeded in doing so as far as they knew. The other thing that we see is that uh, Jesus is really good at answering questions by asking questions of his own. This is sort of wisdom, I think. It just kind of comes through. I'm, as I get older, I, I'm kind of finding that it's much better to ask questions than to make judgments or make pronouncements on things or give, or give opinions or make decisions. It's better to ask questions. Kind of, It reveals what else is going on in that particular situation. And so, actually, Jesus asks them two questions. The one doesn't really look like a question, but it's a question. Do you have a coin? Anybody have a coin in their pocket? Probably not. Kind of a cashless society nowadays. My kids love coins. They have a, a piggy bank, but I, I try not to touch them. Back then, you had to have a coin. You had to have uh, metal coins. They didn't have paper money. Everybody had a coin somewhere. Um, so he asked them this question, do you have a coin? And it turns out they did, which is a little funny because there really aren't supposed to be Roman coinage in the temple district. You're supposed to change all those coins before you come into that district. But it's probable that the Herodians, who, get, who got paid in this kind of money, had some in their pockets. The Pharisees or the Pharisees' disciples wouldn't even touch this stuff. But the Herodians probably had a coin. Um, though, by the way, those tables where the coins are exchanged, that, those are the tables that Jesus knocked over when he came the day before. Um, these coins, if you find one, and there, there was various uh, coins minted at different seasons in the Roman Empire, but usually it would have the image of the current emperor on it. And the coin that Jesus asked to see probably had a, a picture of somebody named Tiberius Caesar. This was the heir of the former person that we often think of as Caesar or uh, his name was Octavian. Sometimes he's called Augustus. He had several names. His name actually kept changing. This was the emperor I'm talking about before, the, before this particular time. The emperor who was the emperor when Jesus was born, his name, he had several names. His name was Augustus, among other, among other names. And at various times in his life, he, he kept accumulating more titles and more names. And at one point in his life, he named himself the son of the divine. In Latin, that, mean, that was fili divini, the son of the divine, son of God. 
It's interesting how Caesar called himself the Son of God. That was confirmed in 27 B.C., 27 years before Jesus, by the Senate. They voted to confer on him that title as well. Now, this Tiberius is Augustus's heir. He was the emperor after him. And on the coin, it would have said, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus, and high priest. And so you can imagine a coin, a denarius, a day's wage, would have an image of a person who was pretending to be divine and an inscription on it on the reverse side that said, this is the son of God or the son of the son of God and the high priest of that religion. Now, that's, that's for a Pharisee, that'd be like touching kryptonite, you know. It's like a miniature idol in your pocket. If you, if you actually carry that around, it's a graven image. It's a, it's a direct violation of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not have graven images to other gods. But the Roman currency itself was everywhere, and it was of that ilk. It was just like that. So that, that's why it wasn't allowed in the temple court. That's why you had to change your money into specially minted temple coinage before you could go in and buy um, by animals to sacrifice. So the fact that they had that coin in the temple courts is funny. It kind of showed that they were really, they, they didn't really respect even their own rules. Now, the next question that Jesus asks, actually two more questions, is whose picture is on that coin? These are rhetorical questions. Everybody knows the answer to these questions. Whose picture is on that coin? And whose title, or the Greek is epigraph, and we get that word epigraph, whose title is on it? Whose picture and whose title is on it? And they're very quick to answer. They should have taken their time. This is where he traps them back. And the answer is Caesar. It's Caesar's picture, Tiberius Caesar's picture. It's his name on there. Son of the divine Augustus, high priest. It's all on there. I want you to go back a little bit to our first reading of the day where Jesus comes into the temple courts and he tells that parable, that obscure, it seems, parable about a landowner who owns some land, he rents it out, he gives it to other people to be stewards of, so to speak. And then when the harvest comes, he asks for the fruit. He asks for part of it back. He asks for payment of the rent. And the, the, the renters, the tenants say, well, let's try to keep it for ourselves. So every messenger that is sent where they require some payment back. They're beaten or abused or thrown out. Finally, the landowner says, oh, I'll send my son and ask for it. They'll respect my son. They have to. And they say, now's our chance. If we get rid of the son, we can have all this to ourselves. And so they, kill, they take the son out of the vineyard and they kill the son. And then Jesus asks the same, some of the same people the question, what do you think that landowner will do when he comes back by himself now to, to demand payment. And the people themselves say, he'll bring those wretches to a wretched end because they did not pay to him or render to him what was owed there. Now that word that, he, that they use, the people themselves use, is apodidomi. Apodidomi. It's a form of give. The word didomi means give in, in Greek. But this is a special variation of give or pay it's, it means to pay something that actually is due to another person, an obligation that you have because of some contract or legal arrangement that you have. And so 
a rent would be an op paying rent would be apodidomi. I, I owe my landlord rent and I pay my landlord. Uh, it's, it's an ode, it's an obligation. Uh, and so um, later they realize, and he even says this, they realize that this parable was about them, that they actually were the ones who mistreated the prophets and mistreated the messengers who said from God, saying, pay back to me what you really owe me. Give me my, what, what I deserve. And, but then Jesus in that parable is also speaking about himself, isn't it? Then the landlord will send his son and they will mistreat and kill the son outside the vineyard. And what's going to happen next? So it's a parable with a prediction of Jesus' own death. It's a parable that points to the cross. It also points to the reality that the people who don't want to pay back to God what God deserves are violently opposed to God and God's plans and finally violently put God's son to death. And this interaction that we have in the text for our sermon is actually a live working out even of that parable from the day before. It's really kind of interesting part of scripture. So Jesus answers them. Pay to Caesar what is Caesar and to God what is God's. Pay it. And again, that word pay, and it's not used that too often, apodidomi, in the Bible. It's the exact same word as used in the parable before. Apodidomi, pay to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, and pay to God what belongs to God. In the old King James, you may remember it as render. Render, which has several meanings, you know. Uh, but in, in that sense, it meant to give over or to pay an obligation. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and render unto God what is God. Pay the landlord what is his due for the use of his land. And so Jesus is using the same word, and we'll see that he's implying that even the people in front of him now are not actually paying to God what belongs to God. Um, there's one other use of that word render. When Jesus dies, Joseph of Arimathea goes to Pontius Pilate and asks for the body of Jesus so it can have a proper burial. And Pilate renders or gives as an obligation the body of Jesus to Joseph so that it can be buried. Kind of interesting. So what should we make of this? In a way, you could say that actually Jesus does fall into their trap because he actually does say, yes, you should pay taxes. Yeah, pay taxes. Absolutely. If Caesar's image is on the coin, Caesar minted the coin, the coin goes back to Caesar. It belongs to him. It's part of your civic duty to pay your taxes. Pay it. But, and, and here's the last word. Yes, render unto Caesar what belongs to him. Absolutely. But, pay an obligation to God what is obligated to God. And again, this is almost like a parable. Because that would leave the reader with the question, and even the people there with the question, so what does belong to God? What does belong to God? Well, let's look at that a little bit. But before we do, uh, we find that even Jesus pays taxes himself. This is kind of an interesting story from the Bible. A temple tax, not a census tax. He owes four drachmas for himself and Peter. Does anyone remember how Jesus gets the money? 
Yes, Ona. That's right. He sends Peter out to catch a fish. It's a supernatural ATM. <laughs> he catches a fish, and lo and behold, in the fish's mouth is just enough to pay the tax for Jesus and Peter. And it, that was in Matthew chapter 17. So Jesus himself pays a temple tax, at least. But here's the part that I think Christians have gotten into a little trouble with. Um, Jesus is saying, yeah, pay taxes. Pay to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Pay to Caesar what's obligated to Caesar. But pay to God what belongs or is obligated to God. And actually we find throughout the Bible, if you read in Romans, for example, not this view that we should be violently opposed to whatever government is running our country at the moment. It doesn't say that. It says actually that we should cooperate with our government, that we should engage in our government in the, and in the civil society that our government provides. This was actually a much harder sell back then. I mean, you look at the Roman Empire. It was violent. It was corrupt. It was merciless. It was mercenary. The way it got people to conform was just to go in and slaughter people until they said uncle. Basically, that's how it got things done. And to, to them, Jesus said, pay your taxes to them. Well, so much more for us who live today in a, in a relatively benign country, I would say, compared to that, right? Um, but yet I think sometimes Christians are in this temptation to disengage from civil society in one way or another. And it might be by saying, I'm not going to pay my taxes because I don't believe in what my government is doing. Well, that's, that's a mistake. Pay your taxes. You're a citizen of this country. You pay taxes. And when you're not paying your taxes, you're stealing from everybody else who is paying taxes, right? Jesus never disengaged from the world. He entered the world in the incarnation. He engaged with it more and more, more and more intensely. Even up until the moment he died, he stayed engaged and connected to the world. He didn't build a monastery on the top of a mountain and just bring a few people to live there with it and try to ignore the world or keep it at bay or limit his interaction with it or limit his commerce with it. He didn't do that. He was connected in it, and he stayed in it. I think one of the things that Christians can do, and some churches can do, unfortunately, is to insist that there's some particular political view that you have to hold, or else you're not a serious Christian. Or a church may hand out a voter guide at a church meeting say, this is how we think you should vote on these issues. Um, I mean, I, I could just imagine if this were, were acting out today, a group of people coming up to, to Jesus and saying, Jesus, how are you going to vote on Proposition Z? Now, there's no Proposition Z on the ballot, so this is kind of imaginary, right? And just imagine half the people in this room loved Proposition Z, and the other half of the people in the room hated Proposition Z, and Jesus was being asked, well, what, tell us what you think. How should we vote, Jesus? Jesus said, it doesn't matter. Proposition Z can take care of itself. You worry about God, giving to God what God deserves. The rest is going to fall into place. And I think as a covenant church in our denomination, and I've said this before, one of the things that we rely on is that our people are extremely literate in the scriptures because we don't have creeds or confessions. We don't spell out for you exactly how to believe on Many of the issues that Christians have divided over, theological issues, we trust you 
to read the scriptures on your own and make up your own mind with the guidance of the Holy Spirit. There's a huge level of trust and a huge level of responsibility in that. The same, I think, is true when it comes to Proposition Z, all right? Read your Bible. Dedicate your life to the Lord. Vote on Proposition Z up or down. That's up to you. That's private for you. We can't tell you how to do that, and we won't tell you how to do that. I'm never going to tell any of you how I vote or what political party I belong to. I'm never going to do that. It's not important. It's not even interesting, honestly. Uh, it has nothing to do with the gospel, except that I do vote. And I am engaged in the civic life of this world. And I do pay my taxes, because I believe that God has called me to stay engaged in this world so that I can have a voice in this world, so that the gospel, gospel can be heard through me. The gospel can be heard through you if you stay engaged. So we'll never tell you how to vote. Um, you can tell each other how to vote. Good luck, you know, see how that goes. Just don't do it near me. I, I, I hear enough of that everywhere else. I don't want to hear it here. Just don't, just don't do it near me. No, you can do whatever you want. Um, here's the question. Um, you know, Jesus, Jesus didn't radically decide that he was going to break from the Roman Empire by telling his disciples not to pay taxes. He had a more engaged and incarnational view. He said, we're going to transform. Yeah, the Roman Empire was evil. It was, it was corrupt. It was wicked. But his view is, we're going to transform this thing almost subversively, one person at a time. We're going to convert one person after another. And collectively, over time, that this whole system is going to change, and it may not be in our lifetime. It took 300 years from the time of Jesus until the Roman Empire was more or less Christianized. And even then, there were some real problems with that because Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire, which is a mess. I mean, that was a mistake. But over the course of three centuries, through example and love and teaching and evangelism, Christianity spread throughout the whole Mediterranean. And if it hadn't happened then, it would, we wouldn't be here right now. It wouldn't, wouldn't have become part of the cultures that flourished in Europe and sent... Uh, people across the oceans and populated this country and built churches like this one. So we wouldn't be here if it weren't for that. But Jesus didn't take the empire by storm. He came in as a lamb. He came in as a child. He came as, in as an engaged, incarnational human being, and he brought other human beings along with him. And through that ministry, all sorts of things began to change. And the question of paying taxes to Caesar became so moot after a while. It wasn't really even the issue. Here's the question that I think Jesus is asking each of us this morning. Whose name is on you? What inscription is on you? Whose image is on you? Whose picture do we see when we look at you, when we look at your life. You read the beginning of the book. It tells us God made them in his image. When I look at you right now, and I'm looking through these glasses that actually help me see things close up, so this is better. When I look at you right now, I see the face of God. I see the image of God. 
I see people that God made in his image as a reflection of his beauty and glory. And whose name is on you? Well, your name, your actual name, yes. But at some point, whether it was in your baptism or whether it was in your conversion, your name was written in the book of life, but something was written on you somehow, somewhere, in your hearts. Something was inscribed there. Something along the lines of, this person is now claimed and owned, you could even say, by Jesus Christ and God the Father. So when I look at myself in the mirror, when I look out at you, I see God's image, I see God's name. If you have a coin that says Caesar, and has a picture of Caesar, that belongs to Caesar. If you have a human being who has the image of God on them, that human being belongs to God. And I would say by extension, then everything that flows out of that human life is to be rendered unto God. It belongs to God. Even the money. Now, the money you have to pay to the ta- for the taxes to be part of the civil society. And, of course, you have to spend money on food and clothes for your children and your house and all sorts of things like that. That's true. All those things. But if we start from the premise that everything we are and everything we have belongs to God first because we're made in his image and we have his image upon us. All these other things begin to find their proper place, even Proposition Z, even how much tax to pay, even what to do with our money. I think there's an aspect of spiritual maturity that is able to figure some things out about this. One is that there's some areas in our life where there's really no competition between what we do with our resources for the world and what we do with our resources for God. When it comes to paying the IRS, I'm just telling you as your pastor, please pay your taxes. It's illegal not to pay your taxes. I mean, just do that. I'll say that. Not to be too law-based, but just pay your taxes because you're stealing from people who aren't paying taxes. If you don't pay your taxes, you're stealing from everybody else not this faceless government. That's, there's no competition there. We're supposed to do that. When it comes to providing for your children or your own health and your own safety, spend that money. There's no competition there. God wants you to do that. That's, that's the easy part, when there's no competition. We know we need to do those things. That's fine. Those are our resources. And I'm not just talking about money. I'm talking about time, energy, giftedness, all those things. There's no competition, so there's no conflict. It's not too hard. Spiritual maturity, and I, I'm not... Here yet, okay? I'm not saying I've achieved this spiritual maturity. Is there's these other areas of life where both this world tries to have a claim on us and where God has an absolute claim on us. And where we need to figure out with even finer detail and a little more precision and a little more discipline how to do this in a way that honors God and also honors and engages with the world. We were talking about this a little bit in Sunday school this morning. Very interesting conversation. I can't tell you what that looks like in your own life. It's, again, one of those things I want to trust you with because you're engaged with the Scriptures, because you have your own relationship with the Holy Spirit who can guide you in this. But I want to encourage us this week to uncover those areas of our life where we maybe hadn't really seen that God has more of an absolute claim on that area of our life than we previously thought. And be willing then to turn it over and let the chips fall where they may 
and see what happens as, as an outcome of that. I want to open myself up to that in this week, too. I want to kind of examine where I spend my time, where I spend my money, where I spend my energy, both my spiritual energy and my emotional energy. How much of those things does God have an absolute claim on that I can give him, that I can surrender to him? And live in the trust that when I do surrender those things, all these other things are actually that I'm worried about are actually going to take care of themselves or will be taken care of by God because he'll take that burden on himself. So if I, uh, if I can impose on us all to have some homework for the week, that's it. Discern in your life those areas where God has a legitimate and absolute claim on everything that you have. And trust him to maybe just one at a time give them over to him and see the results that flow from it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we render to you praise this morning for who you are, for sending your Son into this world to teach us, to die for us on the cross, to shed his blood for us, and to redeem us from our sins. We know that you gave everything for us, and yet you ask everything in return as well. Lord, be with us this week as we delve into our own lives to uncover what we truly owe to you as an obligation. In Jesus' name, amen.